Satellite skies. Satellite skies. Satellite skies. Highlighting DIY and autonomous politics music and subculture with a different theme each week. Hello and welcome to Writing Home. It's Monday the 22nd January, it's 11pm on my clock and you are listening to Writing Home on Satellite Skies at 3CR 855am. This and every following segment will be recorded on Wurundjeri Vivarung country. We pay our respects to the traditional owners of this land and waterways, the Wurundjeri Vivarung people as well as the elders, past, present and emerging. Writing home is about writers who have more than one home, many homes and are realizing so many more. Once a month at Writing Home, I, Madhvi, will be sharing space with writers of color, discussing their unique but collective writing processes navigating home, life and love. Today, I have Lena Ali from the Ali family from Hyderabad House, Harris Park, Sydney. Born in Hyderabad, raised in Sydney, neither Lena or the Ali family are just Lena or the Ali family. There's the love that binds them. There's also the humor, which is the currency of the family. There's also Hyderabad House, which is this house of not just food from their homeland or memories from their homeland but also the love that they chose to carry with them and all the things that they chose to carry with them i think being a migrant and also a settler and also a citizen of somewhere but also a non-resident indian which we like to refer to indians like me there's a lot that happens and there's a lot of labels that some the world puts on you and some that you put on yourself. I think our conversation speaks for itself as Lena introduces us to her family, Hyderabad House, stories of her father moving here, her own stories of growing up here away from Hyderabad. Her stories about her grandma, her daddy, about her mum, stories about her planning her wedding, stories about being the oldest sibling or the older sister, which is a tough role to be in, stories about being a writer, stories about working, stories about creativity, which is shared when it comes to her dad, Hyderabad House and Lena. The experience that is when you are Indian but also Muslim, when you're an Indian Muslim woman, being neurodiverse as an Indian Muslim woman or being neurodiverse as a South Asian where the idea of mental health is a bit misunderstood and not fully acknowledged. Being a South Asian woman in Sydney or growing up as a brown woman in Australia Growing up as a Muslim Indian brown woman in Australia, I think 
Lena Ali is Lena Ali, and the Ali family is its own Ali family. In the words of Lena, Lena is a neurodiverse Muslim woman of color who loves all things animated, literature, food, and cats. She is a creative artist who dabbles in visual and literary forms with a strong focus on the lived intersectional experience of neurodiversity, culture, and religion. When she isn't reading or writing her thesis, Lena is wedding planning and painting Disney characters as birthday gifts for friends and family. She has worked with Media Diversity Australia and University of New South Wales Australian Human Rights Institute. While working, Lena also frequently freelances as a writer for major publications and media outlets on topics such as identity politics, mental health, and personal reflections on being a South Indian living in Australia. I came across Lena from her SPS piece titled How My Family's Late Night Drives Shaped Me. I'll play the piece in Lena's voice. I think Hyderabad House, Ali Family, and Lena makes a lot more sense after listening to it. We pile into the Tarago at 11pm. When the rest of the world is sleeping, our family makes the hour-long journey from Western Sydney to Blues Point in the city. Driving into the heart of the city in the middle of the night is magical. In the daytime, driving in the city is a nightmare. Sydney is congested, noisy and polluted. But my nighttime experience of Sydney is otherworldly. The roads are empty. The tall skyscrapers look like they are floating in the distance with no more than a handful of their windows illuminated by office lights. Empty roads mean there are no horns or screeching of cars and buses breaking every two minutes. As we cruise along Victoria Road, the city skyline comes into view, street lamps twinkling against the velvety midnight sky. We see the road that leads, leads to the entrance of Sydney University, now empty. During the day, the same paths are filled with stressed students and commuters. My parents and I migrated from Hyderabad, India in 2002. Crossing oceans ignited a dream of dad's, and that dream today is 15 years old. It is a restaurant in Harris Park, or better known as Sydney's Little India. I was seven when dad opened our restaurant, and it was the first of its kind in Sydney to serve authentic Hyderabadi food. For my parents, it was a slice of their childhood in their new Western home. Despite living in Sydney for 20 years, no one in my family has ever watched the new year fireworks over the Harbour Bridge in person. Growing up with a family business, I was taught to see the world through a different lens than my peers. It also meant that the schedule of fun and holidays that my family adhered to growing up was vastly different to my friends' schedules. Heading to the restaurant after school, picking up a weekend cashier shift to make a little pocket money in high school, I learned the value of money and hard work. My dad and mum run a tight ship. Our family business operates seven days a week from 11.30am to 10.30pm. While most teenagers remember Christmas and New Year trips overseas and family gatherings to celebrate the end of a year, I remember my family's restaurant at full capacity, the clanking of pots and spoons and the chatter of patrons dancing with a low hum of cicadas. My family's late night drives to North Sydney's water point seems strange to others who do not exist within our world. But it, but it was on these drives growing up my siblings and I understood our parents' lesson of finding beauty in small sp spontaneous moments. It allowed my brother to discover, discover his passion for photography. 
It was on these drives that I discovered my love for Elton John, Celine Dion, Roxette, and Brian Adams. With cups of hot chocolate and coffee in our hands, bundled in Kmart jackets, the drives give mum and dad room to breathe away from the hustle and bustle and spend time with us. But we don't drive all the way to North Sydney just to stare at the soothing lull of harbour waves and gentle bobbing of park yachts. As a hospitality family, late night dinners are a necessity. On the way, we have dinner at Fahim's Fast Food in Enmore. We stop on the way home at Darling Harbour for ice cream. Mum gets macadamia nut, dad gets pistachio, my brother, my younger brother and sister love vanilla. I am crazy about cookies and cream. Some nights when the exhaustion from the day's work is too great, legs are aching, blisters beginning, and if we had to smile and interact with anyone else, we might just collapse. We grab drive through at Macca's or Hungry Jack's on Parramatta Road. Our drives are one of the few ways we know how to be the Ali family, not the Ali family who own the Indian restaurant in Harris Park. Away from restaurant and home responsibilities, my parents relax. They become Shireen and Rehan, not mum and dad. We all sit together on the edge of the lookout, feet dangling a couple of metres above the water and listen to our parents narrate stories about their lives. My siblings and I fire questions at them. Did you guys have coloured television growing up? Are there beaches in Hyderabad? How did you guys talk to your friends without phones? Wait, you mean you talked on the phone, on the house phone, where anyone could listen? These drives were a central part of our family bonding tradition growing up and one we still fulfil. They helped me learn about my roots and connect with my parents. They are a gift I will always treasure. I don't know. I feel like after reading about your family and I love, I don't know, like anyway, culturally, it's such a plays such a big role. Um, what's the Ali family like? And like, what's everyone like? How's your dad? What's your dad like? What's your mom like? Your brother? You? I'd say in terms of my mom and dad, I'd say they are opposites that... Um, perhaps balance each other out in the way that they approach work, they approach parenting, they approach life. Um, My dad is, I would say, I take after him um, in terms of, you know, being very politically aware, being very politically astute, um, you know, having a desire and will to work for oneself, which is where obviously the restaurant came from, um, and very hardworking. I mean, my father has worked every single day um, seven days a week since 2007, um, you know, from 10. And obviously a business is, um, a business doesn't stop when we say we close up shop at 10.30. doesn't mean business stops. There are always things going on in the background. You're paying someone's bills. You're, you know, you're taking stock. You are creating new ideas to stay fresh in the market. So I would say my father has essentially worked um, at least a good, you know, uh, 16, 18 hours out of every single day um, for the past, it is what, 20, 24 now? So for the past, been he's been doing this for 17 years, so very hardworking. Um, and it's a different form of creativity. I mean, I, you know, in, I think in today's sort of um, word of creative, we don't really consider people perhaps that create on a physical level, because that's what it is, creating, you know, the a lot of the dishes that come onto the menu, new dishes and to keep it fresh and spicy, like that is dad's own creation, going to the kitchen and, and coming up with something new to give some, you know, to give his patrons something new. And so he is creative. He is also a, very much an avid reader, um, which are, again, these are traits that I get from him, uh, my own creativity, my own 
uh, you know, being politically aware, very, very politically inclined. That is something that I get from him. Um, now, my mum is, my sister is like my mum in terms of we're talking about parental lineage. Um, and she is more so the diplomatic type if you, you know, she's diplomatic. Um, but I think that's almost all Desi mothers with, uh, you know, oops, with just what life is. They are, you know, fathers also do leave their homes and, and migrate, but they are in a very different position of power as opposed to mothers who leave their homes and migrate, you know, for foreign countries. And often, you know, as is the case of my mother, um, you know, she was a, she was a stay at her mum. And, you know, there are very different power dynamics that come there um, as opposed to being a stay at home mum and someone who can go out and earn and has that, uh, you know, ability to do so, mm-hmm. has the um, option to do so because, you know, that's the, that's traditional family structure. Mum stays at home, dad goes out and goes out and works and that, creates different opportunities but also um limitations on each part I would say so yeah um very diplomatic is someone that um you know that you can have uh funny conversations with I will say that uh so good sense of humor uh actually both of my parents have a very good sense of um humor and that's where my brother also gets it from so you know, kind of so dad jokes, but like on crack. So that's that's how they function. So yeah, that's that's what I'd say about my parents. And then um, with my siblings, my brother, he is, uh, you know, he was class clown at school, and he is, you know, he has owned that. He's also um, he's also very dedicated and hardworking. He works within the media industry, but more so the technical side. So he's the guy behind the camera who's. Uh, sort of doing everything and recording everything that's sports related that's him um that was his dream he defied expectations in terms of traditional pathways and roles that were expected of him as a go become an engineer do business blah 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 and he said nah this is what I'm going to do I'm going to get a diploma and he's thriving like you know thank god and like alhamdulillah he's um he's thriving and he's doing really well for himself and um my sister she's a nurse um well, she's studying nursing again also very She's very uh, nonchalant. I will say this, and that's not a that's not an insult, but a very nonchalant. She's someone who takes life very easily. Both my siblings have that trait, the trait where they take life very easily as it happens. No worries. Um, yeah, so that's what I would say about the family. Thank you so much for introducing us to the Ali family. I think after reading your piece, I. I loved the idea of the Ali family and I loved the idea of Hyderabad House and your dad setting it up and sort of Hyderabad House sitting at the centre of all your lives but then the Ali family knows how to not be the Ali family from Hyderabad Harris Park. I can't wait to know more about what your parents are like when they're together. But before we do that, I'd like to play the first song from the playlist that you've curated for us, which is Wo Kalvas Ki Kashti by Jagjit Singh. Jawani 
मगर मुझको लौटा तो बचपन का सावन वो कागज की कश्ती वो बारिश का पानी associate Wokagas Kikashti uh, with my daddy and I mean Jagjit Singh as a whole I associate with my daddy um, but this song in particular has sort of risen in its importance to me I'd say over the past one year um, because I actually had to fly out on an emergency to see my grandma earlier in early 2023 and this was on, so she's in America, um, very ill. Um, and while I was flying there, I didn't know if I was going to be able to see her. Just even between that eight, 24 hours of traveling, I didn't know if I'd be able to see her. And the song itself is walking through, you know, things of childhood. So not having responsibilities, not having to maintain relationships, you know, your the ownership that you have or what you say, you know, belongs to you is not, you know, gadi, it's not a house, it's not a car, it's not a, you know, it's not the latest phone, it's, you know, it's it's the doll, it's like the doll that you got, um, it's a Barbie, it's, you know, it's the paper planes that you made, it's, you know, the skipping rope that you had. And so it's very much a, it's almost a, I would say a lament in a way for the childhood that is gone by. And for me, so this I have heard my dadima like listen to this song very much so. But then in particular when I was traveling last year to see her, it became almost a way to kind of draw back all the memories that I had growing up with her, not knowing whether or not I was going to be able to, she was going to be alive when I landed essentially. Um, and it was, it was, a, it was very bittersweet. Um, Cause you know, it's Wokagas ki kashti, Wobarish kapani, things that, you know, things that, and, and the world is progressing, like climate change and stuff, like things have gotten worse and worse. But you remember the rain from your childhood and it's very different to the rain you might see today, you might taste today. And so obviously he's talking about maybe even an older time where, you know, my parents' time, my grandparents' time. But it still resonated with me f- from a very filial sense for my dadima, but also just in terms of the growing up that you have to do. And now I'm 24, I'm getting married this year and it's, it's whack. It's like really wild for me to just kind of even walk through mentally um, the past 24 years or whatever my memory um, allows. And 
to kind of just go, you know, there was literally just seven years back, I'd graduated high school. I was like, what are we going to do? How am I going to do it? Blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, oh, you're getting married. You're, you have a job. You're, you're writing and it's weird. And you, know, you need to pay for a wedding. You need to do all of these things. And you, you kind of, you, I mean, not that I loved being a kid or a teenager or loved high school, but there is almost like a sense of, you know, there was, there wasn't any of this pressure and, Translating Wakagaski Kashti, the entire song, or me trying to even tr- attempt to do that, is as I, as you can see right now, is butchering what it's about. But it's a very beautiful melody. It's a very, um, very beautiful reflection on the entire, I guess, experience of growing up, looking back, but also needing to grow up. Yeah. We show up, take no more, black at the heart. Take no more, true in our love. Take no more. Tune in from 8.30 to 4 o'clock on Friday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. Between 10 and midday we'll be broadcasting live from the March in Melbourne and throughout the day 3CR's Blackfella broadcasters will be bringing you voices of the elders, truth-telling, critical yarns with grassroots activists, deadly black music and honouring warriors past and present in the struggle for sovereignty, land back, an end to genocide and a treaty. So keep it tuned in to 3CR on Friday the 26th of January from 8.30 to 4 o'clock. Welcome back. This is Madhvi and Lena, and you are listening to Writing Home on 3CR 855 AM. So yes, Lena, you've sort of introduced us to what it means to be the Ali family. I am really interested to know what your parents are like. Um, again, uh, together I would say uh, a lot of jokes. That's the kind of the currency of the family, jokes. Humor is the currency of the family. Um, so, uh, but also they work well together in terms of, I guess, business, um, you know, which, you know, a lot of people say don't go into business with your partner or whatever. But, um, but at least with my parents, as I've seen it, it's been a strength for my dad to have my mom and, you know, to have her, you know, step in and, and, um, you know, managerial roles and all that kind of stuff. So it's, and, and, you know, he's over the past 17 years, he's valued um, her input in terms of, you know, things to do for the business and how can we better the business? She, he's really taken her advice on board. So I'd say, yeah, they worked well together in that regard. And there's a lot of humor. Together? Uh, how did the idea of Heads of Bathhouse, like, was your dad already in hospitality? Like, how did it all... So yeah. my dad, um, he's a he did a masters in M- like he did an MBA, um, in masters of business administration, I believe is what that stands for. Um, but the man and, and I think majored in marketing and stuff. So he was working at an executive level for like pharmaceutical companies and then like in Australia when when they came here, and eventually it just got to a point where and as I said, this is my dad's own drive 
where it was like, you know, yes, I can work for someone, but I also know that I'm so capable that I can work for myself and I can be my own boss. And, and I, you know, I think in part of that, part of that would have been as a result of being a migrant. Um, so the experiences of racism and, you know, things that he would have encountered coming here. Um, but it also, it was also a dream that he had had growing up that he wanted to own something. He wanted to, you know, create something of his own and kind of leave it a legacy almost, but also nurture it and, and take it somewhere. And so I think a combination of all those things led to Heather by the house and hospitality. I, and, and, and I guess this is his, his, um, tertiary education coming in and his own understanding of what business should be like he saw a gap in the market he saw a gap that there wasn't at that point in time now we've got you know great other um, options as well for Heather, um, Heather Bathy food but at that point in time in 2007 um, you were very limited with Indian options you know you could think of Bulu's and people associate Bulu's as far as maybe early 2000s and I'm not quite sure when Bulu's came about but Beyond that, there were not a lot of options. And specifically Hyderabadi food, there wasn't. Because Hyderabadi food in itself, you know, as different parts of India will have its own flavor. And so that's where that idea came about. He's like, there is a gap in the market. I can actually cater for that gap. Um, and his own lived experience as someone who was Hyderabadi and we are, you know, my mom is Hyderabadi, he's Hyderabadi. So the entire thing just kind of pulled together. So there's lived experience. There was a gap in the market. It had a dream as a child, um, and then also as a migrant, you know, um, as a migrant family man, um, his own experiences, I guess, working at, ex- at a senior executive level in a predominantly white spaces. Um, you know, today we think the workforce, especially in um, in corporate places, is very white. I, when I, 20 years ago, it would have been even whiter. Um, so he was, yeah, coming from all those angles and then, yeah, here we have it, um, 17 years later. Things have changed so much since like 2017 to, uh, you know, 2024, like that's when I moved. Uh-huh, yeah. But then 2002 would be a completely different time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so because we landed here in 2002, I was two years old, um, so mm-hmm. a child at that point. And so my parents were kind of you know, part of that early immigration uh, influx of from South Asia um, in particular because, you know, our, we picked the influx from South Asian, like, migration, I believe, picked up late 90s and then into the 2000s because prior to that, I mean, um, you know, in India, everybody everybody wants to go to America or they want to go to London. But yeah. at that point in time, nobody was thinking about Australia. So he was one of the first few, him and his mates, um, one of the first few to kind of come here. And everybody was like, what are you going to do in Australia? And then, you know, thank God we're here and not there. <laughs> and um, what was it like for you to, um, like, move? So I was very young. I was two. So yeah. I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have much recollection. I actually don't have any recollection of the move itself um, or anything of that sort because my brother was born here. We moved in June of 2002 and then he was born in September um, in Australia. So, yeah, in Sydney. So, yeah, that's don't have much recollection of that period. And what was it like growing up? Did you grow up in Sydney? Um, what suburb? Um, I, I so yeah, have lived our we've lived our entire lives in New South Wales, so Sydney, um, in particular. And then, so when we first arrived, we were in Ingleburn, so towards Minto, Glenfield, that area, um, which is uh, now, as I think, but kind of southwest 
um, southwest-ish. Um, and then from the ages of, I think, maybe five onwards or four onwards um, up until maybe 2007, 2008, we were in ride. Um, and then and then for the past, from like 2007 onwards, so the past 17 years, we've been in Parramatta, just around Parramatta. So like different, the count city of Parramatta is where we've been um, because that's where the, the restaurant is located in Harris Park. And so ease of access to the actual um, place of work that, you know, nourishes your entire household was priority. And so that's where we've been. That was Kuch To Log Kahenge by Kishore Kumar. So Kuch To Log Kahenge, um, this I can translate because I'm not going to, it's not going to be a massive butchering of the translation. Kuch To Log Kahenge literally means people are always going to say something. And as I said, over the past few years, I've literally just gone into stubbornly unap- unapologetic. And that song it, it, I think um, you know it is an old song, but it and I like the melody. I'm I'm someone who enjoys old older music, um, but it literally embodies that entire idea of do something right, people talk; you do something wrong, people talk; you don't do something, people talk; you do something, and that is the entire song. It talks about you know you, um, and I think um. At some point in the song, I believe it also talks about, I believe, a, a Hindu goddess who was also shamed, you know, for, again, I'm not I'm not very good with Hindu mythology, so I'm not quite sure what it's about, but she was shamed for doing something, right? But And the idea that if they can shame a Hindu goddess and they can create an example out of her and they can say, you know, she's bad, this and that, they're going to do it to everybody. You're not exempt from it. Um like Chordo is a very is is one of the repeated dialogues of the song, um, and it's kind of just like let it go, like let them be, like they they're gonna say what you gonna, what they want to say, and you've got to do what you got to do, and so I just absolutely love it in that sense. Um, and it's funny because a lot of the elders will listen to that song, and be like, oh, it's beautiful, but once um, I'd say children in our generation really embody that song it becomes a problem because well, what do you mean but it's you know we don't like it or we're upset by it, blah 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 whatever it may be and it, it's funny so I find that very funny older people really enjoy that song they love the melody the wording the meaning behind the song but um when it gets played into action by younger generations or by even people from their generations who decided to say, nah, screw you, man, I'm going to do my own thing or I'm going to do it the way that I find best for me or whatever it is or for my lifestyle, um, it's, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll throw hands. And um, I think it's very, I, I think it's 
it's humorous, but it's also very hypocritical. Um, but yeah, that, that song just, you know, if I need a bit of a pick me up, that'll, that'll be a song that I will turn to. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. So what was it like, like growing up here um, and, you know, what school did you go to? How did that, like, how did just growing up here shape your, you or your experience or? So um, growing up here is an interesting phenomenon for me. Um, and I think uh, a lot of other people will relate to it as well. But um, being an Indian Muslim is a very unique identity, at least from my personal experience, because in the Muslim community, you're kind of like, oh, like you're Indian, so automatically I'm going to assume that you are anything but Muslim. And so there's, I, you have to jump through hurdles and hoops to kind of be like, no, I am Muslim. Like I'm not, you know, I, I'm, yeah. So you got to jump through hurdles and hoops to get to a point with like, oh, okay, you actually are Muslim. And then within the Indian community and, you know, the politics back at home, um, which is not recent, that has been brewing for a very long time, those uh, current politics in the state that India currently is in, um, you know, it's, oh, I'm automatically going to assume, you know, you're Pakistani or you're anything but Indian because we don't associate Muslim with India and we don't, you know, we don't necessarily think you belong here. And so you had that. And then, so that was, as I grew up, that became, I became more and more aware of that because, because of my experiences. Um, but then the first experience that you would, that I had in terms of like, oh, okay, there's a bit of issue with the belonging and all that kind of stuff was being brown, just in general, being brown in Australia. So being brown in a Muslim way, being brown in an Indian way and um, being all of that amongst you know, Anglo-Celtic European people or people of that descent. Um, and so then, and then as I grew up, um, the neurodiversity had always been there. It just hadn't been diagnosed. Um, and when that kicked in, um, when that official diagnosis kicked in, it had always existed, but when it kind of, it was like, okay, that explains so much of the behaviors or, um, preferences or whatever ways of interacting and whatnot it almost became so became like a fork or like a four-pronged fork where you know as a Muslim 
you know, incorrectly, um, the community assumes that you're not meant to be neurodiverse or disability doesn't exist. And then, but you're also like not really meant to be Indian. You're meant to be, you know, all the other majority Muslim countries. What do you mean you're from India? And then you go to the Indian community and there's that or there's the similar thing with neurodiversity and, and disability. But then on top of that, there's the Islamophobia that sets in. And then you go to the, you know, you go to the white community in Australia, which is, you know, predominantly white with its structures and everything else. And over there, you've got, oh, tokenistic, this will be great. Or it's, you know, it's, or it's, oh, you know, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean the racist thing that way, or I didn't mean to, you know, question whether or not your, you know, your parents are smart enough to do something, whether or not you have an education or why you don't have an accent. And then, you know, in the neuro- neurodiverse community, um, so I have borderline personality disorder. That's a very misunderstood uh, disorder in itself. Um, it's often used by Hollywood. That and bipolar is often and other other um, other um, you know uh, disabilities such as um, schizophrenia and all that kind of stuff. So we all sort of fall under the same umbrella of being very heavily stigmatized but yeah so my diagnosis and these other um, diagnoses are used very heavily by Hollywood and any sort of um, even Bollywood to kind of represent murderers and stalkers and people who are going to like peeping through your hole as you're taking a shower so it's very very heavily stigmatized Um, so yeah it was as you know, I've over the past few years, I think as I've grown into an adult, I've actually had to come and sit with the fact that um, there is privilege that I can speak about these things and I have the capacity to gain access to help and resources and, and learn and not be fearful of, you know, being bombed in my own house or walking down the street. Um, you know, I have basic privileges of, of food, sanitation, water, you know, which are things that people in, for example, Gaza, currently Sudan and stuff, they don't have access to that or they're, you know, they are suffering, Congo. Um, So it comes with that recognition of privilege, but then it's also that it was having to deal with all of these different four prongs of living in a privileged society, that in itself was also very hard. So it's it's a constant, I think, back and forth of in terms of, Growing up here, there is a lot that I am grateful for in terms of the opportunities, in terms of, um, you know, being able to have access to healthcare and good education and all of those things, like, I'm very grateful for and I have a roof over my head and, you know, we're, we're not living in, in poverty or, or fear of war. But then there is also a very acute awareness that um, it's almost like, um, and, and people that do share similar I guess cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds with me, and, and and overlap with me. There's, I think we've almost kind of understood this idea of like there is a sense of homelessness in a very mm-hmm. very metaphysical sense um, okay. of you don't belong here, you don't belong back at home because when you go home, everybody says are nri 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 ki larki ki larki. And for people who don't know, nri is a non-resident citizen of India I believe something along those lines and Baharikilarki just means oh she's from outside she's from outside um and then when you come here they say you're from there and then and it's just it's you know you don't you don't belong anywhere um and so again those are those are very crucial I think aspects that shape the things I write about or the way I interact with the world or the way that I exist as a human being and yeah that that's what I would say
yeah oh thank you for sharing um like there's so much beauty in this complexity mm-hmm. like the complexity that we are you know mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. but yeah sometimes it can also be a bit lonely a bit confusing yep um and uh the pressure to yeah sometimes there's just a lot of pressure to literally conform yourself yeah to like one side yeah you know, mm-hmm. one thing. yeah yeah and yeah and it's pretty hard um and i think i've come to a point now where i would say i would label this as stubbornly unapologetic um and sometimes it gets me in trouble um but stubbornly unapologetic about the parts of being an Australian parts of being an Indian parts of being a Muslim um there are yeah other things that I pick and choose from because you know it's it's it and and I think people feel this in every other aspect of life as well no matter what you do, it'll never be good enough for other people. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't dates where days where I'm like crying and I'm sobbing because someone said something mean or, you know, I'm upset about something that's happened or I'm, 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 you know, I'm dealing with tough things. It just kind of means that an overall approach to life is in very, in very, very candid terms, you know, fuck you, <laughs> candid terms. That's, that that's kind of how I function because I've, you know, you've, I grew up at one point in my life trying to be, you know, this erasing all Indian and Australian part of my identity to be Muslim. That didn't mm-hmm. work, right? Even then it wasn't good enough. And then you do that with the Indian part and then it's still not good enough. And then you do it with the Australian mm-hmm. part and they still say, hey, I mean, you know, they still they still can't. Um, you know, for the life life of them, pronounce your name right. And obviously, I'm very privileged because my name's quite short. Um, but even you know things like my middle name or my last name, it's not Ali. Like it is not your white girl name. It is not Ali. You know, yeah. you can say Schwarzkopf, you can say Ali. Like it is not that hard. Yeah. Um, and I would, you know, and obviously there are people with a lot more um, traditional names that would have a lot more. Um, I would say maybe a really deeper understanding of, of those kind of issues. But I think, yeah, it just came to a point now where it's stubbornly unapologetic when it comes to um, all aspects of the identity. Take it or leave it. That's, that's, that's the motto now. Bas 
इतना सा खाब है बस इतना सा खाब That song is going to go on my Instagram story when I graduate. <laughs> but um, that's one thing. So graduation for me. I, I'm like, I have like reserved that song for graduation for me. Um, but also that is actually the song that my dad had playing in the car when his friends were dropping him off to the airport. And he was leaving India, I think, for the first time to go and make something of himself. So, I mean, that's a story that's always existed at the back of my mind. And my dad loves that song. So he replays it and it he relives in his own memories. And I guess, you know, in lots of ways, our memories are also sort of hand-me-down memories for my parents. And we stitch a new fabric into, that, into those memories, I would say, almost like a quilt. Um, and so it's this idea of, like, the song itself is literally about success it's just about going and getting success and then the other really iconic thing is that Shah Rukh Khan got literally everything that is mentioned in that song you know Sonika Mahel Mere Piche Mere Piche Mere Aage you know Dunya Bhaage like you know you know in front of this is again butchered um transliteration but you know from in front of me, from behind me, from all sides, you know, I the, I want the world to chase me. And that's literally, Shah Rukh Khan got that. He is the king of Bollywood. Um, so it's, it's a very fascinating song in that sense, but also it, it's a very lively song. It's a very happy, go feel lucky song. Um, and the day that I finish this thesis and I wear that damn graduation gown, that's, you know, that's that's where that song is going to be associated. I literally, every time it plays, like in my car or wherever I am, that is what I'm imagining. <laughs> I'm imagining graduation and then bits and pieces of sort of reflecting back on dad's own journey from he, from India to Saudi Arabia, then Saudi Arabia to he. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM.
what fuels me as a person. Um, I'm going to say it's equal parts rage um, and it's equal parts um, wanting to take that rage and do something with it. So, and which comes from the belief that yes, there are people and there is changes possible. Not, not. I'm not. I'm not assuming that my any sort of creative practice I do is is having a international scale level of you know impact or, or you know we like topple down and top down government change. I I'm not assuming that, but I do think um, even if it's just a few people, it makes a difference. Um, because then those few people go away and then talk to other few people and it's just it's a chain of reaction so I think that's a lot of what inspires me not in the sense of I think I'm gonna go change someone tomorrow um, and and I'm gonna go and you know I'm gonna go wow people with this piece a lot of that is creative it's, it's rage but a lot of that is also you know anytime um, as I said this is I think this comes from the multifaceted perspective that I sort of walk in as as someone as and in my everyday life you know when we talk about mental health when we you know when you see the adverts for mental health when you see the movies or you see anything it's always a white person right and then the white person solution for that because again it's they exist within a colonial structure and there are very different values at times that are applied to upbringing of kids and how you deal with emotions and etc but it's always it's always neatly packaged and you know mom and dad come around at the end or family accepts you at the end the amount of you know I can probably count on my fingers the amount of people of brown people who have been accepted or very lovingly um, and I don't mean the sort of like we don't talk about it acceptance. I mean, I mean the sort of acceptance that they show in Hollywood and on screen and in movies and and in books and all that kind of stuff, where it has been, you know, boundless, unconditional sort of acceptance for things like mental health, for things like disability, for things like wanting to do something different with your life. Um, I can probably count them on one hand. Right, and we 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 sort of exist in communities, so it's not that I'm only ex- interacting with two people, and I can count them on my hand. But I'm I'm interacting with a broader South Asian community, and I can count count them on one hand. And so when I talk about things like my um, eating disorder, or I talk about uh, suicide attempts and stuff like that, a lot of that is motivated by the fact that not many other people will, or they will, but the kids will talk to each other. And it's it's an echo chamber at that point, which is great because sometimes we need it. We, we need it to vent to each other and to unload and to feel that camaraderie of like, you know, we understand. Like it's 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 difficult. It's tough, that, that gap between understanding, the generation gap, whatever it may be. But then, and that's great, but then a lot of what I write, um, a lot of aunties and uncles actually have – End up have ended up reading what I've written, and it's fun. I find that very amusing. I find that fun when they come back and they kind of say, "Yeah, but we don't really agree with that." And I said, "That's okay. You don't need to agree with it. The fact is, this is a reality. This is not based on your approval or your idea of I agree or disagree. You know, um, you can agree or disagree whether red is a nice color, but you can't agree or disagree whether people have lived experiences of 
abuse of mental health of suicide you can't agree on disagree on that that's not up for debate that's reality and you can choose to ignore it but you're not agreeing or disagreeing because it's not you're not commenting on color you're not you're not com- you know commenting on whether a certain color is nice for a dress or not nice um yeah so i'd say that a lot of a lo- largely a lot of my creative practice is inspired by that by just even in the smallest part of the corner um of sorry of the world making a corner where i can just write about those intersecting identities and you know ultimately even if it let's say you know even if the piece never reaches anybody and it never does or it doesn't in- incite thought um I think at the end of the day, one of the other things that create a lot of people forget about creative practice is that it is also for the artist, what is also mm-hmm. for the creator of the piece, whatever yeah. piece it may be, visual, literary, um, music, sound, whatever it may be. Um, and it is a way, it's, it's a way of like catharting, like literally it's just catharsis in a lot of different ways. Um, and I would say that that is also one of, of the factors behind that. And I don't, think that makes me selfish but I think it makes me very human because you know if you're not able to do that stuff in your communities then you need then people often turn to creative outlets and they don't know obviously as you said they don't have to be written they don't have to be visual but they turn to creative outlets to then process or deal with or you know dissect what happened and I think yeah that's one of the so yeah those are like the top three four things that really drive my creative practice Mm, yeah um absolutely and uh i i it's yeah it's funny this idea of yeah like i'm a writer or you know success or achievements in itself mm-hmm. like of course i feel like as um yeah like writers of color you really have to yeah i mean it's a whole journey you know like even studying creative writing it's yeah. a whole experience it is yeah yeah, and even seeing, yeah, creative writing and how traditionally it's been and how it's never changed and how even in India, the same creative writing course is being taught that is being taught here, which is borrowed from America. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's colonial roots. It's all colonial roots. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, why did I spend so much money? in similar situation where in my family, like, yeah it's it's the they're really different they're all into banking and yeah somehow I'm like oh I'll do this and still you know I mean yeah I, I feel like now they know that I make money they don't yeah. care how that money I make but yeah. they're like okay like but still you know they yeah which is fine it's okay because yeah I've made sense with my creativity whatever that might be um but yeah and it's funny because it's ex- like, you know, I mean, being in India as a creative person and then moving here, like, you're like, you're moving through the world. So definitely there are these ideas of what you should write about or, oh God. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of, yeah, the comments that I would get at uni uh, by people who would workshop and yeah, it was so hard. Everyone was just right. It was so hard to find a person of color, let alone. I actually, um, so I did creative writing courses throughout my undergrad, um, and now I'm doing my honors in English Lit. Um, but throughout those courses, those creative writing units, whenever, so as you know, you got a workshop, you, get, you have a final project that you 
um, present at the end that's submitted, but then you workshop halfway through for a draft and then you the final that you submit, nobody else sees but the tutor, but then the midway point, um, the class sees and they workshop. And you, you often have a presentation or some form of like, this is the inspiration, this is these are the writers that I'm inspired by, or this is the theory, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I made it a very strong point for everything that I have written because, again, it was very much based in decolonial, uh, decolonial, decoloniality. Um, I hate that word, but it doesn't roll off my tongue very easily. Um, I made it very clear. Um, I remember in one of my classes, I was like, I do not write for the white gaze. If you are offended by what I write, that's okay. I don't care. It really, what it ended up doing was, it was very, um, I found it because I, again, a uh, very white university and the kids that would come there from the North Shore. Um, and that's not to say that they haven't had their own experiences in life, but as in, again, a very narrow worldview. And it would come through in their writing, it'd come through in their discussions. Um, but I honestly found a lot of joy in doing that and just saying, I'm not writing for you. I And I would make sure that the tutors I actually chose to work with, like, you know how you can see who's taking the class or mm. whatever it is, they would be writers of colour. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried it for one semester where I had an Anglo tutor and half of the thing just went over um, the tutor's head. They didn't understand what I was talking about. They're like, this reference to, I, I made a reference to, um, you know, to being like sexualized and looked at and then like there was a comparison th- between Aladdin and the way, um, no, no, sorry, not sexualized. That was another piece. So um, I'd essentially written a sort of autofiction story on the experience that my grandma from my mom's side had. She's only ever visited Australia once, but she was actually walking me home from school and we were, I was in kindergarten. I was five and so she would have been maybe about 60 around then. Um, and a bunch of and this is so this is 2005 so this is four years after 9-11 and in a jeep a bunch of about maybe 17 to 18 so older than 17 they were driving um white kids pulled up um then they pointed at my grandma so she was she was wearing a shawl she was in visibly Indian clothing she's also a Muslim so she had a she had a dupatta over her head um and they pointed at her and they, you know, they kind of said, you'll be next, um, I guess in a finger gun, so like a gun, you'll be next. And I made the, com- I, so I wrote about that and I made the comparison that in that moment, you know, they looked at her like as if she was Jafar. And so that comparison of Jafar as this evil cloaked guy and then making that comparison to my grandma. And it sounded a lot nicer on paper. I'm butchering it while I'm explaining it out loud. But it just flew over his head. It flew over his head and he's like, this has no relevance. And I kind of just looked at that and I went, it was, not, it was not constructive in the sense of the metaphor or whatever it needs to be drawn out clearer. It was just, it's not relevant. And it was like, what do you mean it's not relevant? Like I grew up in Aladdin, you know, a lot of Muslim kids, a lot of brown kids grew up in Aladdin, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and for you to say there was no relevance kind of just misses the point entirely because you don't have that cultural sensitivity you don't have that cultural training yeah yeah. so I think after that I made a point my tutors in terms of especially for creative writing they were they were tutors of color um and at that from that after that class onwards 
any curated writing I submitted or presented on, it is not for your gaze. I do not care mm. if you're offended. I do not care if it, you know, harms your sensitivities around the monarchy and what you think Britain is and that it's all in the past and it doesn't exist. Like, I do not care um, mm. because I'm not here for your white, fragile eagle. And, like, I've literally said that in front of class. And, and yeah, it's fun to see people shut up. <laughs> upon a time the planets in the face and all the stars aligned you and i ended up in the same room at the same time and the touch of a hand lit the fuse of a chain reaction of counter moves to assess the equation of you checkmate I couldn't lose What if I told you none of it was accidental And the first night that you saw me Nothing was gonna stop me I laid the groundwork And then, just like clockwork The dominoes cascaded in a line What if I told you I'm a mastermind And now you're mine It was all by design Cause I'm a mastermind so I actually uh, resonate with this song um, with like in terms of me and my fiance um, who were um, you know, we're getting married uh, in October this year, and um, there's this particular line where she talks about if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail, um, and you know the, the way we started out was. I'd kind of done a bit of recon on him, gotten an idea of who he was. And so it was every time I hear that song, it's very much um, I'm the planner in the relationship. I'm the one who thinks 10 steps ahead and, and does the anxiety and, you know, takes the anxiety for the whole relationship. So the night that I met him, I actually, you know, we met at a birthday party, um, at an f- old friend's birthday party, and we sat down. And now, look, in western hookup culture it's kind of like the first night is you know you're trying to you're trying to see if you can slide with one another and and you know kind of flirt and stuff but I actually came in with a plan and I was like okay so I'm going to see this guy in person I'm going to see if I find him attractive okay I find him attractive he looks good all right so the next step was I sat him down and I got home at 1am that night um, but not, not in a way where it's like, Ooh, what were you doing? But it was literally in a way where I sat him down and I was like, okay, religion, culture, politics, mental health, gender. Um, there was a range of other topics. It, I literally quizzed him. Um, I would say, it, and you know, we laugh about it now. It's like, it was an interview almost. And because for me, I was like, I don't know where I'm going to see you again. So I need to know that if something is there or if something can be there, then I need to like, you know, plan for it to happen and then do my best to see if it goes somewhere. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but then it did. And so planning was a very big part of how it started. We also, we were um, in primary school, we were up until year four, we were in the same classes for most of the um, years. And and then he left in year four. He moved from that private school to go to a different school. And then we met exactly 10 years later. So we, he was nine, like we were nine the last time we both saw each other. We were kids in a class. And then 10 years later, out of 
old, old friends' birthday party. And so it was, it, there's a lot of, uh, Mastermind has a lot of elements of planning. It talks about planning and having to, as a woman, having to think about multiple things. And right, we often talk about it in terms of like, as a woman having to think about the way we behave and the things we do and, you know, in corporate settings and family settings and whatnot. But Taylor Swift almost for this song talks about it in a romantic setting. Um, and I very much resonated with the type A personality that's portrayed in the song of, you know, wanting to know what's happening, planning for stuff to happen and then sort of setting the scene to make it come alive, um, you know, if, if it works. And I associate, yeah, our relationship with that song. Um, and But the best part about that song is then, um, you know, you, sm- you knew the entire time, like he knew the entire time, like he, you know, I looked over at him, he smiled at me and he like knew the entire time that I had been like a mastermind planning all these things and, you know, putting stuff into notion. And when Frakan and I talk about it and we look back at it and he's like, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, it's like pretty obvious. <laughs> and so it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's something that I associate with Furkan and I, and so it's, yeah, that's, I guess that's why that's there. That's all for today on Writing Home with Madhvi and Lena. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care.